This presentation of In Their Own Words is brought to you by The Honor Project and is dedicated to the brave men and women of the United States Armed Forces. Arguably, the biggest advantage the North Vietnamese Army had over the Allied forces was the element of surprise. Masters of the sneak attack, the Vietnamese crept through miles of tunnels that they had dug underneath the field of battle. To combat this subterranean enemy, U.S. soldiers armed with nothing more than a 45 caliber automatic pistol and a flashlight voluntarily dropped into the tunnels and crawled through pitch-black passageways in search of their elusive foe. This unheralded group of American soldiers, the so-called tunnel rats, infiltrated the underground web of the Viet Cong. C.W. Bowman went to Vietnam as an infantryman with the 25th Division in January 1967. We heard about tunnels, and that was mostly from the old-timers that were already there. You know, they talked about, you know, Charlie popping up in tunnels and, and uh, ambushing and, or, or setting an ambush and ambushing the squad or the platoon, and then they'd melt away in the jungle. You'd never find them, and, and what they were doing was going down in tunnels. Actually, uh, the... Uh, First thing I went into was a, a, a big bunker. We were doing a S&D, a search and destroy mission, and uh, going through a village. And they came across a, uh, a lot of the people uh, in the villages had bunkers underneath their hooches and stuff. And uh, there was a particularly large bunker, and they uh, said, okay, Bowman, you're the new guy. You know, you're going down in there, you know. And I said, well, you know, I don't know if I like this or not, but you know, I was the new guy, you know, and I wasn't going to show that I was afraid to go down in this bunker, you know. I, I guess it was a macho thing, I don't know. Mm -hmm. uh, but they gave me a, a flashlight, had a red lens on it, which actually you get down in the, in a tunnel, you can't see anything with the red lens. But uh, had my M6, I remember I had my M16 and that flashlight, and I went down the steps into the bunker and it was pitch black, but I could see light at the other end or the, where the other entrance into the bunker was and I was so scared that I focused on that light on the other end of the bunker and I had the flashlight in my left hand my M16 in my right hand and I walked towards that light and there could have been a hundred people in that bunker but I didn't look left or right and I just I said all I need to do is make it to that light and I'll be okay and I walked I slow walked to that to that light and I got out get out of that bunker <laughs> Uh, and like I said, if they found uh, uh, tunnel complexes and stuff, that unit or team would come out and run the tunnels, whereas our unit, uh, it was kind of like, uh, you know, we found a tunnel, okay, who's going to run it, you know? And in this case, it was uh, usually Gary and I ran the tunnels. And, and once you do that, then it's kind of like from there after, you know, until either, you know, you go home or something happens, you're, you're more than likely going to be the one to run the tunnel. It was strictly voluntary basis. Uh, you didn't have to go in a tunnel. Uh, if you went in a tunnel and freaked, you never had to go back in a tunnel again. And uh, you could do that real easy. I mean, you get down in a tunnel and start closing in on you, or you hear noises and you start shooting, and you can get cranked up real easy and lose it completely, and and uh, probably make you go insane if you're not careful. A lot of tunnels, you you get into like a uh, uh, NBA base camp or, or base camp, and you start 
checking the bunkers out, but then down, you'd get down inside and, and the bunkers would have tunnels leading off of them. Uh, sometimes if you were fortunate enough, you could find the entrance to a tunnel. Uh, two of them we found was just by pure luck, because two NBA or two BC uh, uh, in one particular tunnel came out of the tunnel while we were there. They killed them and then you know we, we found the tunnel where they came out. And that happened in two different occasions in the year I was there. But like I said, most of the tunnels were so well camouflaged. And uh, I think they had uh, specific rules and stuff, how to dig the tunnels, how to make their trap doors so they would fit. And, and once, they, once they closed that trap door, you couldn't even tell it, it was there. Uh, we would be in areas where you'd walk along and you look down and you see little piles of dirt all over the ground. Well, they would be digging tunnels somewhere in that area, but they would spread the dirt all out through the jungle. So they wouldn't have a pile of dirt somewhere. Uh, yeah, a lot of the trap doors were small. Most of your entrances, uh, uh, they were at angles and stuff. You'd go in and make a right angle or left ang or you know left turn or something like that. And that was mostly because GIs had a habit of just tossing a grenade in a tunnel and uh, say, "Well, that takes care of that," but wouldn't do any damage because uh, uh, mainly the first section of tunnel, you'd go in, it would make a turn, it'd either drop down and make a turn, or you'd go in and make a right or left turn and go a short distance, and then there'd be a trap door going down. Mm -hmm. And uh, if that was closed, you know, you didn't do any damage to anybody or the tunnel, uh, unless for some reason they were in that first section of tunnel, uh, concussion, get them, whatever. You didn't find them all the time, you know, they were so well concealed. Uh, uh, Normally you wouldn't find them unless you know you were in like bunker complexes and stuff like that. Uh, most of the time you're going through the jungle, humping the jungles, uh, breaking brush, and uh, you didn't run into tunnels. You know, uh, I don't know, a few dozen, whatever. Uh, you know, not that many over a year actually, because like I said, they were so well concealed. I mean, we probably walked over thousands of them. Uh, never knew it. Uh, especially in the Coochie area, that's that's where the, uh, the majority of all the tunnels were in, it, uh, in our AO, our area of operation, uh, and that's that's the area that was noted for tunnels. Uh, the uh, laterite or the dirt, the earth there, uh, was so easy to dig in, but once the air hit it, the walls almost set up like cement, so they didn't have to use shoring and all that. They just dug the tunnel and. Uh, when the dirt dried out, it was almost like cement. So, uh, I mean, and they dug away. And, well, they were digging since the French were there, you know, and they were fighting a bit, bit men down there. So, they had been, they were, they'd been digging tunnels for 80 years. So there was quite a complex of tunnels there. Even those tunnels that seemed deserted posed a deadly threat. We had to fight some spiders and and some. Uh, uh, we called them fire, well, they weren't fire ants, but they were ants they had over there that uh, could literally take chunks of skin out of you when they bit, and they would hang nests of those in there. And uh, there was all kind of, uh, you know, things you had to watch out for in tunnels. I didn't run across it, you know, the, the one story was that they would take uh, bamboo vipers and, and nail their tails to a board and hang it from the ceiling. You know, and you're going through there in the dark, and you know, uh, and bamboo viper, we called it the three-step snake. You know, uh, they bite you, you take three steps, and you were dead. Uh, 
but uh, uh, you had supposedly those things hanging down in the tunnel and, and uh, just different punji uh, pits, uh, false floors that you could fall through into punji pits. Uh, they had uh, false walls in the tunnel where they could be on the other side and as you're crawling through they'd shoot you. Uh, one of the tricks I heard was they would wait for a couple guys to run tunnels and, and when you went up through a trap door, when you stuck your head up through there, they'd take a steel or bamboo rod and run it through your neck and, and pin you there in the tunnel. And uh, of course it freaked out the guy that was with you and, and you didn't have to worry about anybody running the rest of the tunnel. One tunnel that Bowman and fellow tunnel rat Gary Heater investigated looked like it had no exit. Gary pulled the door off the tunnel and, and I could I shined my light down there. I could see some ammunition boxes, but uh, couldn't see all the way down the tunnel. Uh, so I told Gary I'd go first through this trap door. So, but the only way I could get through there was set on the edge of the trap door and put my legs through and then put my hands over top of my head like this so my shoulders would be narrow enough to fit through. Never thought about how I was going to get back out. But anyway, when I, when I dropped down, I had pistol in my right hand, my flashlight in my left, and I just landed on my butt, shining it like this, you know, and, and luckily there wasn't any, anybody down there waiting for us down at the other end of the tunnel. So, uh, and Gary came down behind me, and then as we got halfway down that tunnel, that's where we found that little escape tunnel off to the left, and uh, that's where the picture came from, where they were, uh, after we finished running the tunnel, we went back out through there and they took our picture. But we went down to the end of that tunnel and there was another trap door gone up. So uh, Gary says, okay, Bowman, he says, uh, you went through the last one. He said, I'll go, he said, I'll push up on this. He said, you, you shine your flashlight and hold the pistol there, you know? So I kind of leaned back in the tunnel and had my pistol and flashlight like this and he pushed the trap door open and, and nothing happened, you know, so Gary kind of stuck his arm up there with the light first and then just kind of eased up, looked over the edge and he dropped back down. He said, God, he says, a booby trap up there, you know, and so what the hell's up there? He says, I don't know, he says, but it doesn't look good, you know, and, and uh, we looked back up there and, and I believe it was, I think it was a claymore, a Chinese claymore was sitting up there on, on, a, on a tripod. Uh, I think it was just stored there, but you know, we didn't know whether it was booby trapped or not, but uh, uh, we had claymores. Uh, the uh, U.S. Army's were, were about uh, about this big and a concave, had a pound of C4 in them and had 250 uh, ball bearings in front of that. And when you set it off, it, you know, it'd throw out those ball bearings and, and, and kind of cut a path down through the jungle or cut people down or whatever. Chinese would make them about this big around and about yay thick and they would be full of, uh, usually, you know, they would uh, take our duds, bombs and stuff like that and, and, and disarm them and crack them open, take the explosive out of them and use that. And then inside of them could be anything, you know, rocks, glass, uh, chunks of metal, whatever, but uh, they would just blow a path clear down through the jungle no problem and uh, this was what was setting up there you know so uh, we, we both kind of eased back up there with the flashlight <laughs> looking over the edge and, and uh, realized you know it, it, it was just something that was stored up there but it, but it uh, kind of scared the hell out of us for a while and we crawled up there and we found well that and some weapons and uh, 
uh, a bunch of rice and documents, uh, uh, and, and we searched that room. We couldn't find any other trap door, and they're fairly well made because they they were real experts in uh, concealing these trap doors and stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, you try to probe around or whatever and, and find it, but you know, you didn't always uh, locate it. So uh, anyway, we got everything that was in that room and, and hauled it out. On one occasion, the darkness below the ground revealed a deadly enemy. A couple times you could hear movement up ahead of you. Uh, and we didn't always run tunnels. I mean, as a team, sometimes you just went down by yourself. Uh, uh, and I'd gone in a couple by myself and uh, came into a room and, you know, I, I guess I might as well go ahead and say it. There, there was, a lot of these, they had big rooms and stuff, and they, this one had like some bamboo beds. They, you know, they'd take bamboo and split it up and make beds and stuff, and there was <clears throat> two or three guys in there. They were wounded or whatever. Uh, I don't know whether it was a hospital or just a recovery area or whatever, but they weren't seriously wounded, I don't think. But anyway, they had like their weapons up against the wall and stuff, and I kind of stumbled in there. Uh, really when I came up in there and shined the light, you know, and boom, it was like Keystone Cops. They were there and I was here and and they started reaching for the weapons and I started shooting, you know, and, and when that happens, it's like, every, it's just flashes, you know. Flash, this happens, flash, that happens. Uh, people hollering, screaming, people shooting and when you shoot a 45 in a tunnel, you know, I think you immediately go death. Because, you know, uh, you holler, you scream, uh, your heart's pounding. I mean, it's, it's all reaction. You really don't think, you just start shooting and you want to get out. And you want to get out any way you can, you know. And, and running tunnels, you develop the ability to not think but shoot. Because you don't want, you don't, if you take that, if you hesitate and think about it, you're the one that's probably going to die. So if there's movement or, or noise, uh, you shoot. And uh, that's what I did. I shot, you know, and uh, get the hell out of there as fast as I could. And uh, once I got out, uh, you know, it was, you were alive, but you know you were just so pumped up from all that, scared to death. And they say, you know, what's down there? What's down there? And, and, and you said, well, nothing, you know. And uh, and what I did is I took a charge back down and halfway down the tunnel and said, I'm gonna collapse the tunnel, you know, and uh, set the charge off. And uh, I'm sure the tunnel wasn't collapsed or anything, you because know, once we got outside, you know, it just went boom, you know, it just shook the ground. Sometimes the tunnels would yield valuable treasures. Later on, uh, we came across a, a bunker complex out in the Hobo Woods, uh, and which was part of the Iron Triangle area, that, uh, our area of operations. And they, they found a tunnel out there, and uh, I want to say it was Operation Manhattan or Fairfax or something like that, I can't remember. We found a tunnel, some tunnels down there, Gary and I, and, and uh, Gary had, uh, we went in the bunker, he found a shotgun and stuff, and. I said, well, well you know, we're finding some neat stuff, you know, and then we found a tunnel, and I, 
you know, I guess it was young or whatever, crazy, whatever, but I said, well, there ought to be some neat stuff. Maybe we can find some souvenirs or whatever, you know. It's kind of that uh, gung-ho, you know, you're young, you're not going to die, somebody else is going to die, the type thing. So we went in the tunnel, and, and uh, uh tunnel wasn't that big. Uh, uh, I forget how far we went, but we found a room that was full of documents and stuff. Uh, found a map. map was probably... I want to say about two or three foot long and about maybe four or five foot long, but uh, it was in a tube and Gary and I pulled that out and uh, it had uh, a map of the whole area where we operated with Coochie and, and Tainan and uh, Trangbang, Saigon area, but it had I think 30 or 40 some overlays on it, acetate overlays and it showed all the, the base camps, VC base camps, tunnel networks and a uh, bunch of other things on there and uh, it extended the operation like about two weeks. So all the guys in the company were pissed at us anyway, you know, uh, because we had to stay out there in the jungle for a couple more weeks. But uh, uh, Gary and I were the ones that found that map in the tunnel. And uh, there was a bunch of other documents, but for some reason I wasn't as scared in that tunnel as I, I was in the bunker. I guess it was because the bunker was the first thing. But, uh, Still, when you come out of them, uh, you're you're pretty wound up, pretty cranked. Got a lot of adrenaline flowing through you, so it uh, feels good to be alive to get back out. But for Bowman, just getting out of a tunnel alive was the name of the game. Bowman's fellow soldiers seriously doubted that he would survive his deadly duty. Back then, I had, like I said, I had a good sixth sense. Uh, uh, you had to be real observant booby traps, uh, uh, any traces of uh, somebody in there. Uh, uh, luck, somebody was with me, the Lord was with me. That's who I have to contribute to now, you know. And uh, uh, over the years, you know, you know, I used to fight and argue with him and, and uh, you know, uh, wonder why he put me through those things, but evidently he had a reason. Uh, and. Uh, and uh, I resided to the fact that, yeah, he was with me, you know, even though during the time, you know, uh, I used to say, you know, he hated me and I hated him and, and it kind of balanced out. But uh, evidently he had a reason. I still don't know what it is, but uh, somebody was watching over us. Uh, uh, and like Gary and I have talked over the years, you know, and, and, and both of us had made the comment, you know, we really never felt that we were going to die down in a tunnel. We got scared as hell sometimes. And sometimes it got touching. It was touch and go, you know, uh, uh, like that little shootout. You know, I probably ruptured my ear. I had blood in my ear when I come out. You know, uh, the concussion down there from a 45 is tremendous. And uh, and and we've seen pictures and books where the tunnel rats had 38s with silencers and all that. And we said, well, that'd have been nice, you know. But uh, we just didn't have it, you know, and like, like in our unit, you know, it was, hey, you know, we need somebody to go in the tunnel, and, and we went, you know, and you took a 45 and you chambered around and cocked the hammer back and went in. So, uh, what do I test? Uh, we paid attention to what we were doing. Uh, we actually had no training on it, you know, it was just one day you went in a tunnel and they told you, well, watch out for this, watch out for that. So. Fear keeps you well alert. Uh, being alert, uh, being lucky, having the Lord watch over you, uh, whole combination of things. So, 
uh, no special skill or anything. Well, I guess maybe it was. <laughs> it depends on who you're talking to, you know. And Gary and I were, you know, we were just a couple old GI Joes, you know, and and uh, looked at it as, uh, I guess, a challenger or whatever, and uh, stepped up to uh, do it. What was your reputation in the rest of the squad and the, and the platoon? Those guys think you were absolutely crazy people. Well. Took me 30 years, but I, I found another friend of ours, and he's coming down later today, Paul Frisbee. Uh, he hung around. He didn't run tunnels. Uh, but after, after I found him, I went, to, I went to visit him, and we were talking, and uh, I told him, I said, well, you know, I said, I had a hard time when I came back from Vietnam. You know, I said, I was a mean son of a bitch, you know, and, and uh, just didn't want nobody around me. And he looked at me and he kind of laughed. I said, what are you laughing about? He says, what do you mean when you got home? He says, you were a mean son of a bitch over there. He says, uh, he says the platoon and the squad were making bets on you and Gary that you wouldn't live through your tour. I said, what? <laughs> he said, yeah, they were actually betting money that uh, you weren't gonna live through all this stuff you guys were doing. And I said, oh, nah, yeah. I said, you kidding me? He said, no, he said, I'm serious. He says. Uh, None of us believed that you were going to live through your tours. So I guess that's how they looked at us, that uh, we were crazy or mean or whatever. Uh, you know, we just thought we, you know, I don't know, we got, kind of thought we were normal, you know. Uh, we weren't no heroes. I didn't consider myself a hero or anything like that. You know, I was just a, a grunt like the rest of them, you know. We, I've always, you know, the guys that didn't make it and stuff, you know, they were the heroes. Uh, you know, the guys walking around the Congressional Medal were, were awarded that. We had a Lieutenant Sergeant. Uh, he won the Congressional Medal of Honor. You know, he was the hero. Uh, we were just G.I. Joes, you know, doing our job. Vietnam was kind of war. It was a dirty war. It was kind of a situation that when you were over there, you just had to recite to the fact that you were going to die. You know, you probably weren't going to make it, so you were going to do the best you could and fight as hard as you could. And 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 uh, if you made it through, then then you had to deal with the fact that you made it through, you know. But if, if you had to put everything else out of your mind, you know, uh, 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 family, uh, friends back home, what's going on back home, you just couldn't think about those things because you had to concentrate on what you were doing over there, uh, uh, and and that's kind of the way it was, you know. Uh, uh, put everything else out of your head if you're going to survive. And, and not everybody could do that. Uh, not everybody could do that. Uh, and certainly a lot of them didn't make it. So, but no, we, uh, we, just, we just thought we were doing our job, you know. Uh, and uh, I guess now we can think back, it was a hell of a job, wasn't it? Gary Schooler, another willing tunnel rat, recalls his first impressions of Coochie the heart of a vast tunnel network near Saigon, South Vietnam. The first impression when you get there is, uh, I, I know my first impression, got off the plane and walked straight to a bus. This is down at uh, Benoit, where I came in. And we got on the bus and started going to uh, uh, Long Bend, which is where we were going to be processed before we went to our unit. Well, first thing I know, we all noticed we got on this bus and it had chain link on all the windows. And we came across pretty fast that that was to keep the grenades from flying through the windows as we went through town the town of the people we're trying to save, you know. We, <laughs> so there's this dichotomy right off the plane. You see this, that there's danger. It's not just out there in the jungle. There's people here who want to kill us too. 
And uh, that kind of went against what we'd been told in our training back in the States. Uh, I, I remember seeing films uh, that they showed us where we were trying to help these people defend their freedom and this and that. And so to get on that bus and see those grenade screens, uh, you know, made me realize maybe there's a little bit more to this than we were told. Uh, when we got to Coochie, uh, we were assigned to a unit. Our, our unit was out in the field. And um, basically what you do is fill sandbags and go to school. They had a mines and booby trap school there which is probably the best thing they did for us because it made us at least aware. I thought the school was kind of stupid because they've got, unlike out in the jungle, you'd see wire, very obvious, green, bright green wire or something, and a very obvious grenade tied to a tree over here. They were just trying to make a point, I think, but when you get out in the real deal, they weren't so visible. But it did, it did uh, uh, get us to start thinking about the fact that there's more than just riflemen out there. There's other ways you can get hurt here. And they made it, they, by this time, I get there, uh, he said 25th been there since 66, and we got there at the end of 67. So uh, they had quite a few experiences with mines and booby traps by that time. Uh, those first guys, those poor guys that showed up in 66 with the division, they'd never seen one or even heard that term. I'd never heard the term booby trap until I got over there. So they're the ones that had to trip them and find them the hard way, and, and, and we were taught that to watch out. And so that, that helped. We still had casualties from that, but probably not nearly as many as uh, in the early days. Um, let's go, let's Coochie Base Camp. Um, was it a city? In, I mean, describe yeah. Coochie. Uh, base camps were uh, interesting in that they were really small cities. I mean, they had their own water systems, their own electrical generation. Uh, Coochie was one of the bigger ones, 25th Division. At one point, I believe it had 16 or 17,000 troops. That's a lot of people. Plus, they would bring in, when I was there, it was that big anyway, uh, they were bringing in people uh, from the outside, uh, civilians, Many of which were VC, I'm sure, uh, to the tune of three, four thousand is what I remember. Uh, but it'd be huge masses of them at the gates every day coming to work. Uh, the Coochie base camp was uh, when it became evident that uh, that Saigon was was becoming more and more uh, endangered by these creeping Kong regiments and so forth. Uh, the people down there in, in MACV decided to ring Saigon with these several bases, 40, 50 miles out. And that would be like the first line of defense. And that's Coochie was in a strategic part of the Ho Chi Minh Trail where it came into to southern Vietnam, through Cambodia and so forth. And it was just kind of like the, the main road. All roads lead to Rome sort of thing right through Coochie to Saigon. So it was, that's the reason I put such a big base out there. Uh, now, I wasn't there in 66 when they first went in, but I had friends who were. And when they went in and built, set this base camp, it was designed to put right to be put right in the middle to obstruct the movement and the uh, the uh, training and everything that was going on by the Viet Cong at that time. Uh, those guys, they just showed up on trucks and there was nothing but rice paddies and trees and, and they had to form a perimeter, dig in, start building uh, bunkers and then later hooches. And uh, The interesting thing about Coochie was it was built on a tunnel complex, part of the bigger tunnel complex, which I believe is something like 160 miles, they, they estimate in length. And it goes for uh, uh, all, through half the AO of the 25th Division, but a lot of it had to be right under the base camp. So <clears throat> originally, or soon, they started finding out that uh, they were being shot at from within their own perimeter at night and things, snipers and things. And they, they finally figured out that people weren't coming through the through the wire, through the perimeter. They were actually coming from within the perimeter, didn't duck out of sight. So I, I think uh, based on those those early guys that were doing the tunnel business. Uh, it took them uh, several months to, to clear out Coochie, and I, I'm not sure even how they did it. They, I know they collapsed the tunnels, they filled them up, they put concrete, everything. And eventually, 
they worked the tunnel, the working tunnel system outside of the perimeter at least. The Tuttle Rats operated in a zone known as the Iron Triangle. There were three particularly bad areas along the Saigon River, <clears throat> which uh, at that time carried a lot of sampan traffic, Viet Cong munitions and things. And uh, the tunnel complexes linked them all together. The, the southern one was the Boiloy Woods, there was the Hobo Woods, and then uh, the Feehole Rubber Plantation was in that area also. Uh, there are others, but those were the ones to the to the uh, east of Coochie along Saigon River. And I, I would say the tunnel, uh, the tunnel story part of the whole deal was probably 70% played out in that area. Uh, that was um, something that had been started, I've since learned. They told us a little bit about this stuff, but uh, the, even against the French, they had started building tunnels out there. So by the time we got there, they were pretty extensive and they were uh, effective. Um, and, and I think most people that were in that area knows the, the Boloi Hobo. And also across the river from there, just across the river, 100 meters, was the Iron Triangle. And that was a Viet Cong stronghold for, for years and years and years before we even got there. So that was also laced with tunnels. The Iron Triangle? Uh, it was 25th worked in there a lot, and there were, the 1st Division worked in there. Um, and there was uh, all the 196. Several units went in there. 173rd was in there one time. But no matter who went in there, they never were able to uh, neutralize the, the, uh, that stronghold. And uh, the Iron Triangle is actually, uh, na- it was named by, I believe, a colonel who had, there had been an Iron Triangle communist base in, uh, in the Korean War, and he picked up on that, and he named this the Iron Triangle. But it really is a triangle. There's, there's the Saigon River, Titin River, and then Ben Kat, Ben Suk. These were villages that were raised during the war, I mean, just wiped out. Everything inside the Iron Triangle, if, uh, I have these maps, the old mission maps, and if you look at the old mission maps in the Iron Triangle, it'll give the name of a village, and it'll have in parenthesis under it, destroyed. Name of another hamlet, destroyed. Everybody was ordered out of the Iron Triangle around 1966. And uh, it became a free fire zone, what we call free fire zone. That meant anything we saw in there that moved, kill it, because they're not, if it's a person, it's not supposed to be in there. Uh, the the part about the Iron Triangle that amazed me was that it was kind of, I don't know why that would be a, a place the Viet Cong would pick because you've got this triangle with the rivers on both sides and uh, really rugged terrain above. It looks, to me, if looking at a map, it looks like it's, it's sort of uh, secluded and, and, you know, like back to the wall sort of thing. And I think the American, Americans that plan these operations thought that too. We'll drive into the river, we'll do this and that. But they had one, one thing we didn't, couldn't handle, and that was the tunnel systems that would allow them to go down underneath all that. And uh, when we started operating up there, uh, it, it had already had several big operations way swept through there. They never were able to clean them out for sure, for good. And uh, I personally think that was just a thorn in the side of the America. I, I don't think it was that much of a, when, by the time I got there, there weren't that many Viet Cong in there. But I think it just bothered them that they couldn't clear it out, and so we kept going back and back. Schooler recognized that the element of surprise was the NVA's greatest advantage. I think what we noticed mostly uh, was, was you'd be walking through an area, say, triple canopy jungle, and you really think of jungle, you're, th- you're thinking uh, there's going to be a bunker over here in this hedgerow and there may be a sniper up in this tree and that kind of thing. But though those things were there, most of the danger came from walking to an area that was infested with tunnels and what we call spider holes, just small, you know, maybe just big around holes that these guys could pop up out of, 
take a shot, hit a guy in the back, pop back down. Everybody gets down, um, and uh, we find out we got a man down. Everybody do that, and you drag him off, get a dust off in there. Everybody says, where did it come from? Some guy's looking over here, some guy's looking back here, but you can't see where, where it was. If you do see the guy, and you do try to mount some kind of assault to take him out, uh, you may get to the hole and find nothing, because uh, he's gone down, gone someplace 100 meters away, underground, pop up, shoot you again from the other side. So <clears throat> with that kind of strategy, it's easy to see where they can uh, effectively control a company's movement. Two or three guys could for a whole day. Now, I will say this. It seemed like we always got them eventually. We always, somebody found them, got a grenade down there or something eventually. But we always took casualties doing it. And from their perspective, if they could take out two or three of us and only lose two or three of theirs, they were happy with that. They've, they've said that many times. The original tunnel rats were engineers who were uh, specialized in demolitions and uh, engineering, all kinds of things like that. Um, and they had the tough job of, of learning about the, uh, the, the booby traps and the, the snipers on the ground, uh, the snakes hanging from the ceiling, those kinds of things that we were t they told us, they passed on to us. And it made our job a lot easier. They found these things. Uh, a, a good example is one of the, one of the earliest stories of, uh, of uh, bad things that could happen to the original tunnel rats was uh, be going through the jungle, find maybe get a sniper around, crawl up, find a hole. A man would be lowered down feet first, which sounds kind of unstable. We're talking about a hole, again, only about maybe 20 inches across. But you wouldn't want to stick your head down there first either. Uh, <clears throat> and uh, the VC had developed a technique that uh, I think they used against the French too earlier, uh, where one man would stay at the tunnel, take a piece of bamboo, sharpen, and jam it through the midsection of the person coming down, uh, all the way through to the other side. Well, this, this accomplishes several things. First of all, it puts this guy in a big hurt, and you cannot pull him out of the tunnel because he's got the bamboo stuck all the way through him. So it effectively seals the tunnel. The man has a chance to leave the Viet Cong. Uh, this is a very disturbing way to die. It's, there's a lot of screaming, a lot of shrieking. It's not instant death. So it's demoralizing to the people. Uh, tunnel rats used to tell us these stories. And, and we, we learned that they learn pretty fast. Don't ever go down a hole without throwing a grenade in first. Very simple, basic stuff. But sometimes you have to go through an experience like that to learn it. So by the time I got there in 67, in the 67, we had learned from these initial guys. And we would always take plenty of grenades. And you can, you can uh, get rid of anybody that's down there just by throwing a frag grenade down there. If, uh, if it's booby-trapped, you know, one of their booby-traps, it probably will set off that booby-trap. So you're, you're you know, killing two birds with one stone there when you throw that grenade down there. Now, most of the time, there wasn't anything there. But if he, did, uh, if he was down there, it was, it was going to get him. And uh, just a very simple thing, just always grenade, you know, frag the thing first, and, and you would have a lot better shot at making it. Uh, but if we didn't know that, we probably would have done the same thing. Hey, there's a hole. Let's go get it, you know, fall down, same thing. Now your first experience, uh, what made, how did that happen, and why did you volunteer? Uh, at that time, there was, uh, we were, there was more of the defoliation going on, again, in the 67. Tunnels were a lot easier to spot, because they, they had three phases, the way they got rid of the, these complexes, and uh, mainly the uh, forestation things up in Hobo, uh, Hobo and Iron Triangle, places like that. They would spray them, defoliate the thing, then they come in, burn them, you know, napalm and so forth. And then the wrong plows come in and level everything. Well, by the time all that was done, you defoliate the thing, all these holes start popping up all over the place. And so there was just a lot more holes than there were tunnel rats, I think. And, and they figured out, well, we can't, we can't wait for engineers to come from, they're busy in another sector or something. 
So they would uh, just say, well, anybody want to go down? And there's always a few of us that would. And um, I think we, we felt like we'd benefit from the first guys. We knew pretty much what was what to look for. Um, and we were a little more cautious maybe than the first tunnel rats just because there, there wasn't this sense of urgency to, to see what was the other end we knew. Uh, but I went in usually behind somebody else and at the first. And my whole tunnel rat experience was compressed maybe in about three months because that's the area we operated. That's the area we were operating during that first period of my tour. Later, we, after Tet, we moved back into uh, closer to the Cambodian border where there weren't so many tunnels. Um, but uh, what we were looking for was, of course, feast Viet Cong. Uh, there weren't very many Viet Cong up there at that time. They again, they would hold you off with two or three guys. Eventually, you, would, you could neutralize them with with uh, different things. In fact, they tried uh, while I was there. I remember several things were trying to knock out the tunnels. One of them was pumping water. They bring these big pumps, the size of a Volkswagen, big diesel pumps. Bring them out by helicopter, Chinook, drop them by the river, connect tubes all the way, maybe 100 meters, 200 meters to the uh, the entrance to a big tunnel and pump water, literally pump water all that day and night uh, for weeks into these tunnels. Well, it sounds good. It sounds like you're getting rid of the gophers, but uh, we found out later that the VC had a way of sealing those things where the water wouldn't penetrate. And I think another thing they used to do was they would dig shafts, vertical shafts, as far down as, as they needed to to get to a porous strata, and the water would just go out like a drain, you know, like a bathtub. So it, it was partially effective, I think, in the short term, but when they figured out what we were doing, they would they figured out a way to seal their tunnels. Their tunnels were in three levels, usually. So if they just sealed off the first level, that still protected the, the next two levels. Um, another thing they tried was pumping gas down, or CS gas. And uh, CS gas is basically an industrial-grade uh, tear gas used by the military. Uh, it's very strong, and uh, uh, they would pump it down in there <clears throat> and just try to permeate the, the different tunnels um, the air shafts, everything with it. And I, I do remember some Viet Cong leaving uh, when we caught several trying to get out of there, get away from the gas. I remember that happening a couple of times up in the triangle. But for the most part, they were able to seal those off too. And they, we also, one of the things we used to find in the caches down there we'd come across were gas masks, homemade gas masks, made of simple gauze, simple, simple plastic bags and things. And they'd tape the gauze in there and wrap around their head, and that was their gas mask, and it worked. Uh, we had $300 gas masks that didn't work, the ones we carried, you know, so. Uh, they were just brilliant at, at uh, simplicity. That, that's about all you can say. They, they would take the most difficult problem you can imagine and, and apply a, sim a simple uh, methodology to, to solving it, and they, they would always come with an answer. And so by, uh, by that time, 67, and going into 68, uh, I think the, the Americans figured out the only way they were ever going to neutralize them is just to destroy them. And they uh, they started carpet bombing B-52s. Um, I mean, there were airstrikes in there all the time. You know, the F-4 fans, they're in a firefighter, or something come in, drop their bombs. They always leave a crater. But carpet bombing by B-52s is an entirely different thing. Anybody's ever been close to a B-52 strike uh, can tell you it feels like an earthquake. And uh, the first thing when you see one, uh, by the way, I think B-52s are not allowed to, to bomb within three miles. They're not supposed to, anyway, within three miles of their own troops. That's how dangerous it is if, they, if they're off a little bit. Those guys are so far up there that you can't, uh, they, they can't see you, you can't see them. You can see the bombs, you know they're up there somewhere, but they're so high you can't see them. That's the reason they're never shot down. But uh, the, uh, the first thing you would see is these flashes, but no sound. And then you, then you feel the, the, uh, the rumble of the ground. 
ground starts rumbling like an earthquake. Then the next thing, the last thing, is the sound finally gets to you. So it's like three f- stages there, you know. And it's, it's really, really awesome. You, you can't imagine anything being in the path of that surviving. You just can't. Uh, you're talking about a swath. Uh, they would do that, and then they'd put us on choppers and run us up to the edge of this, this swath that might be five, 600 meters wide and maybe a half mile long of just craters, nothing but craters. But you can imagine that uh, if there were tunnels under those craters, they, they couldn't uh, withstand that. And that eventually um, uh, led to, uh, I, I really think, the abandonment of the tunnels uh, in that 67, 68 area, uh, time frame. Because if you think about it, you got the level ground, let's say Hobo Woods, and below that, 10, 10 or 12 feet is the first level. And then you got these craters coming in, digging 20 foot, 20 foot uh, uh, craters. So you walk up on a crater and you look at it, there's a hole on this side of the crater and a hole on this side. And uh, everything, so how do they fix that? I mean, even if we leave and they come back and want to fix it, how do they fix that? You, that, you can't go through that crater anymore, so do they dig around it, do they dig under? I think it just became too, too massive an engineering problem for them to continue to keep repairing the tunnels once the B-52s got involved. And I mean, when you got up in the air, uh, it looked like a moonscape down there. It was nothing but craters and, and, and uh, flat flat ground craters, and uh, I think uh, it's all well and good to have tunnels, but if you come up out of the tunnel and you're, you're in just a, a bland moonscape where you can be spotted easily, it doesn't do you much good. So I think they started using more at night after that and to store, store caches and things like that, but not to, not to house armies. For Schooler, the darkness of the tunnels was like no other place on Earth. First thing I would say about the experience in the tunnel is this: that is, very few people, at least very few sighted people, uh, can imagine the total absence of light. And and it's one thing to say the old cliche about you couldn't see your hand in front of your face. That's the only place I've ever been where it was absolutely true. If your flashlight was turned off and you were, let's say, a hundred feet around the corner from your entry point, you literally could not see your hand in front of your face. And a lot of people think they've been in that situation, but they haven't. Any, anywhere outside in the country or whatever, there's always residual light off the atmosphere, off your radium, the radium dial on your watch, whatever. Down there, nothing. So all you had was, was your flashlight, 45 usually. You had to strip down because it's a very tight space down there. Uh, take off your headgear, no helmet. It's not enough headroom for that. Uh, radios were uh, pretty unheard of. I've heard of people dragging radios behind them, which isn't very, very uh, efficient because they're heavy. Uh, normally, you carry a radio on the back. That's, there's not enough room down there for that. Uh, I mean, these are several things that, that are different from operating on the top. Say, walking point on top is walking point in a tunnel. In a tunnel, uh, you have a compass, but it doesn't do any good, because to use a compass, you have to shoot an azimuth. You have to have an idea where you're going by looking at a map. You shoot an azimuth to that point using your map, and on the surface, for example, you see, you pick out a benchmark. Maybe hope, hopefully there's a tall tree there or a pagoda over here or something that you can, you can get a bearing on. And as a benchmark, no matter if you have to go down the canal or back and forth, whatever, up over and around the hill, you still don't know where that tree is and you know it was on your asthma. Well, in the tunnel, that, that kind of reckoning doesn't do any good because you shoot an asthma in 20 feet, to, maybe you want to go a point 500 meters to the north. Shoot an asthma that direction, but in 20 feet you hit a dirt wall. So what do you do then? I mean, the compass is useless. I mean, maybe you go to the right and back around. Uh, there's no way to pick up. There's no benchmark to, to focus on. So uh, it's good to, to uh, it's good to take a compass because when you get out the other end, you may have to get back to where you came from, and you don't know. You just don't know whether you're going in circles uh, or what down there. I, I was in a situation once uh, when I first started going down. 
And there's actually three of us. This is during that time when we were finding a lot of these small 30, 40 weapons caches. And uh, I believe this was a Hobo Woods, if I recall. Um, the, uh, the lead man had done it a lot more than me. He was not, a, he was not an official tunnel rat as an engineer, but he'd been down more often than I had. And I was right behind him, about 10 feet behind him, five, 10 feet. Um, and because of visibility, you had to stay pretty close. You wouldn't, ideally, you wouldn't be that close together because of booby traps, but uh, you, you can't lose sight of the guy either. You, you may get lost, so he's the only one that's got the flashlight. Then there was a sergeant behind me. Uh, and he was another 10 feet back. Well, we started going in there, and we got in pretty far, and we realized that this was just strictly exploratory. We were, we were hot to trot that day. We thought we were going to find the biggest weapons cache of the whole company. We just, I mean, believe it or not, we actually thought like that some of us, some of the time. Uh, and uh, I think part of that reason, that for that reason of thinking, that line of thinking is that it's, all, it's the only thing you've got to, to dang your hat on is how well you perform in that situation, how the other, your peers, you know, uh, accept that. And uh, so there was some gung-ho stuff going on there. Uh, we must have been fairly certain that Charlie wasn't in there. I don't think we'd have been quite so anxious. But we were finding a lot of weapons, so we, we started going, and we got further and further in. We couldn't hear any noise from the back or any noise from the front. We, thought, we figured out, well, you know, we, we don't want to get lost in here. And the problem was we started coming up on forks, you know, like two or three different tunnels. So we talked about it for a minute. We said, well, let's do this. We'll, we'll always take the right fork to the right. And if we hit another one, we'll take the right fork again. And then whenever we get to wherever we're going, <laughs> wherever that is, we'll turn around and we'll take the left fork all the way back each time. It sounds good on paper, but uh, it didn't work. And we got out there. We must have missed a, an opening or something. Something happened. We went down to a different level. Or, uh, we lost track, and so you're pretty much out there. We figured we'd crawl maybe a, a 900 meters. Um, that's a long way underground on your hands and knees. That's that's not uh, that's 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 chicken feet on top, but down there it's a long way. You don't know if you went down or, or how deep you are or anything. So we figured, uh, well, we'll never find a way back because it was so it was just honeycomb. So we just keep going the way we're going. We're bound to there's bound to be an exit point at some point here. And uh, I know during that that time. Uh, we noticed the, the cutaways in the, in the sides of the tunnel where people had been sleeping. And we're talking about maybe, uh, oh, dug in about two feet into the wall, about six feet long, which is plenty big for a Vietnamese. Uh, every 10 feet or so, there's one of these little spaces cut out of the wall, a little enclave. Uh, and the uh, Viet Cong were gone. Also on the walls, there were cutouts for oil lamps, things like that. So somebody had been using it for, for billets. Um, there was one spot that was uh, just alive with spiders. I do remember that. And the the guy behind me wasn't particularly crazy about spiders. He he was, a, you know, brave guy. He, he won medals for all kinds of stuff, but he didn't like spiders. <laughs> and he was trying to get me to come back and clear out the path for him. The guy in front of me had the flashlight. Uh, he was uh, could see where he's putting his hands and knees and so forth, and he was just kind of maneuvering through there. We're only talking about when I say maneuvering, we're talking about you know, two and a half feet wide. Uh, as for me, with no flashlight, it was just a matter of the crunching sound tells you you're in the spiders, and uh, and they get on your clothes and things like that. But I don't think they were uh, bad ones because none of us got sick, you know. Uh, but you, nobody likes bugs crawling on, especially spiders. And this sergeant behind me, it was uh, he was adamant, so I would go back every once in a while with my feet and try to clear a path for him. He keep he keep following. Got a little bit further down. Meanwhile, you know, we're, we're just trying to find an exit. That's all we're trying to do. We forget the weapons. We don't care about the glory anymore. We just want to get out of there. And uh, you start thinking about what I, you know, could we be lost in here for a long time? 
or maybe never get out. I mean, it's kind of crazy, but it, it, I guess it could happen. Uh, I heard a squeaking. It was up kind of around a bend. Just, it got louder and louder, and it just sounded like, man, I thought there were rats or something, because there were not other other tunnel rats. There were real rats down there. Uh, and uh, we got around this corner, and a guy shone, shone a light around there, and about, it looked like, it seemed like a million, I'm sure it was several hundred bats just came right at us through this, this little uh, you know, five-square-foot that's when you just see them from about, I don't know, 10 or 15 yards away coming right at you. And all we did, all you could do is just lay down flat and you could feel the wings hitting you on the back of the head and on the back. And they weren't coming after us, they were just trying to get away. Uh, but uh, that, just unexplained, uh, unexpected things like that would happen to make it, make it a, a, a memorable experience. The good part of that was it meant that Charlie probably was not in the area. If, if, there, if the creepy crawlers and the bats and the rats and everything had kind of taken back the tunnel, uh, the Viet Cong were most likely gone. So I did feel some relief at that. We didn't know what we were going to run into. Uh, finally, I mean, it seemed like we'd been down there three hours. Finally saw a little shaft of light off in the distance. And, and we, by this time, we didn't care whose light it was or what it was. And, uh, and we went to it, and it was a, it was a well. It was a, from the outside, it looked like a well, but it had a, kind of a foot uh, steps carved into the side. Of this clay, and you can put your feet on both sides and work your way up. Pop out of the ground again. You don't know if you're right in Charlie's backyard or you don't know where you are. We, we had no idea how far we'd gone or what direction. And uh, it was in the middle of a clearing. It was just jungle on 360 degrees all around us. So then you pull your compass out and you know where you came from. So you can shoot an aspen and go back. Then all you have to worry about is either walking through Charlie's territory or your own guys popping you as you walk through the jungle towards me. So you try to, you, you want to call out, say, hey, we're coming. Uh, Alpha coming, you know, this is Alpha coming. Uh, we're coming, so don't kill us. When we, as we walk through the hedgerow, we're not Charlie. Uh, but of course, be at Conk in here too, and they, they could be there. So that's kind of a touchy situation, whether it's coming out of a tunnel situation or out on an ambush patrol or anything. You always have to remember that when you return to your lines, that's very dangerous, especially in a free fire zone like that. Uh, so that, that was a, a rather uneventful half a day that really produced nothing except some stories, and uh, I, I talked to those guys every once in a while, and I still remember that day that uh, we went so far and we got lost. And I'm just uh, glad somebody dug a well where, <laughs> where it was because we were run out of gas. The Battle of Waterloo was one of the most famous turning points in world history. But what happened next? My name's David Montgomery, and I'm the host of The Siecla, a history podcast that tackles exactly that. Join me as I cover France's overlooked century in between Napoleon and World War I. The Siècle, spelled S-I-E-C-L-E, is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and can be found wherever you get podcasts. The Viet Cong used the tunnels to stockpile weapons for their massive Tet Offensive in January 1968. Well, at that time, <clears throat> when I spent most of my time in tunnels, those three months leading up to January 31st, which was the beginning of the Tet Offensive, we were finding, again, the uh, defoliation had, had uh, started in a big way. We were finding a lot of tunnels that we'd never seen before because they were covered with the jungle. And we were finding all these caches of weapons. Well, we never realized at the time, because nobody knew about this Tet thing, or at least they did, they didn't tell us. Uh, nobody knew why were all these caches out there and why uh, uh, all these supplies, for what? There's nothing out there, you know? It's the Iron Triangle, it's, it's, it's a raised uh, it's a desert, it's a moonscape. What, what is all this stuff doing there? Uh, January 31st, when the Tet Offensive hit, it all became clear because that was a staging area. The troops moved in there, and something like 
two or three days into the, through the tunnels. They pick up their weapons, they, all their gear, all this ammunition stuff they've been stockpiled. I'm talking mostly about the uh, 9th Viet Cong Division, which was a big-time hardcore main force VC. They've been around for years and years. Uh, 271st, 72nd, 73rd regiments, which we wiped out time after time, and they always came back. There was always plenty of people uh, to, to fill the ranks, and <clears throat> they, were, they were very disciplined fighters, and uh, when you think about it, it was their home ground. Those guys were all from that area, so it's kind of like somebody comes uh, to your hometown and starts uh, walking through your vegetable fields and things like that, and raising the, the village. Uh, you're going to not you're going to be more aggressive probably fighting him than you would going off to a foreign country. Uh, so these guys were very dedicated and very very good, and they set this up. Um, NVA joined them, coming down from the Ho Chi Minh Trail. They they got these weapons. They were able to crawl within just a few miles of Saigon. And this is the kind of northwest sector, uh, let's see, yeah, the northern sector of Saigon, anyway. Uh, and then it became clear after that, after this, after this massive uh, assault on the, on the capital there, that uh, these guys had been planning this for a long time. That's what all those little caches of weapons were about. Uh, that's why they, we, didn't, we didn't encounter a lot of large-scale stuff out there at that time. I think they wanted to draw attention away. They didn't want to draw attention to that area because they were staging for this big assault. Uh, now, the interesting thing about that was that uh, in, in that assault um, on, on during Tet for that first week or two, on that part of Saigon, it was almost all the night division. The, almost the entire division was wiped out. Uh, we just had too much firepower, and they underestimated that. They've since said that. but uh, So the, the people that got wiped out there were kind of the caretakers. They were the developers, the protectors, the caretakers of the tunnel system, that night division and, and units from it, and, and they were just skeleton crews after that. I mean, instead of 20 men, 20 man cells uh, protecting a certain part of a tunnel complex, they were down to two or three men. And uh, that was kind of the beginning of the end for the tunnels. There weren't enough people to, to fix the damage. Uh, I, I'd say by, uh, we went up there a few times after, after Tet 68, but uh, they were pretty empty. It had served its purpose. Uh, if you go out there now, They'll tell you that uh, I mean, the Vietnamese have a have made a basically a theme park, <laughs> a wartime theme park, uh, and uh, they'll tell you that the tunnels were effective right up to the end of the war, from from sixty six, sixty five up to seventy five. It's not true. It, it was pretty much uh, between the B fifty twos and the attrition uh, during Tet on the Viet Cong. That was uh, that was pretty much the end. That was the end of the story for the tunnels. For Schooler, the hardest thing to control was his own fear. This is probably going to sound pretty hokey, but I think that the guys that went down felt like they're doing something that not not very many people could do. And uh, some some people force themselves to. to and I'm talking about bravery, even. I'm, I'm talking about just uh, uh, sort of a confidence and sort of a, uh, uh, a youthful macho approach to life at that point. A lot of young guys have. Uh, and, and you know, the tunnels are, are terrifying to some people, claustrophobic people, and so forth. And and other people, they're not. Uh, I will say this, that uh, the the most, uh, well, every guy that went down was afraid of something. And like a sergeant, I told you, he was afraid of spiders. He didn't care about Charlie, but spiders bothered uh, I've heard guys say they, they had fears of rats, uh, uh, other things like snakes. Snakes was one of the things they used to booby trap tunnels with. They'd suspend them from the ceiling. You walk through, I mean, you crawl through in the dark and bump them on the head and they strike you. I mean, that's the intent. We saw some dead ones. I never saw a live one, fortunately. But um, for me, 
and I'm not, I think I came out of the whole thing fairly unscathed uh, psychologically, but for me, uh, there was one thing, there's one thing that will give me dreams and I've had dreams about, and that is the thought of being buried alive, of, of uh, being trapped underground, not being able to get out and your air slowly running out. And I, I never quite overcame that. That one always bothered me. I was worried about uh, uh, explosions and things like that. Fortunately, that was pretty solid ground there. It was, it was a type of clay that's, that's pretty stable. But still, sometimes you're crawling in, in those areas that were narrowed so that only Charlie could get through, or he thought. We would actually go through those, and you could actually feel when you, when you uh, expanded your lungs, when you took a breath, you were kind of wedged in, so you exhaled so you could have a little bit better maneuverability through there. Now, if you can picture yourself being stuck, if there was a cave-in or something, I, I can't imagine a worse way to die. I, I'd rather be shot or blown up or something, but the idea of being stuck under there with no, running out of air and that slow death, um, I have awoken in the middle of the night with, in a cold sweat thinking about that. I've never had dreams, bad dreams about Charlie. I've never had bad dreams about snakes and, and the other things. Uh, that, one, that one got to me a little bit. And I would say every guy has something like that different. You know? uh, so that, that was, uh, there, there is some fear. And I think uh, uh, it's, it's the idea that you can overcome that, that fear. It's a great feeling. There's nothing like, like uh, combat's where it happens most often. There's nothing like going through that kind of thing and winning. Uh, I mean, bad things can happen to you, but if you come out ahead, um, you got something to be proud of. It. The enemy's resourcefulness earns schoolers respect. Viet Cong were, were uh, great at making use of uh, whatever was around, for example, Everybody's heard of Ho Chi Minh sandals. Those are simply footwear made out of truck tires with the, the inner tubes cut up to make straps. Good for 50,000 miles or 1B52 strike, we used to say, but uh, they were effective. And they had nowhere to go get supplies. They had to do it all themselves, um, as opposed to, to our situation where we were resupplied every day, every evening really, with ammo, whatever we needed, food and things. So they had to pretty much carry either carry what they needed or stockpile it, carry it and stockpile it and come back to it. And that's what, one of the things they used the tunnels for. They had stockpiles of stuff everywhere. Um, it was very common to find a small tunnel entrance, explore it, and find a cache with maybe 30, 40 weapons. And I'm talking about brand new AK-47s, uh, usually bathed in grease and wrapped in plastic. And they would just put them in a little cutaway inside the tunnel and just leave them there for future reference. Now, uh, and along with the munitions, the munitions with it, and uh, one of the things that we didn't realize in, uh, in uh, November, December 67 was this, this Tet Offensive was going to happen at the end of January in 68. So we started finding a lot more up in those areas like the Hobo and Iron Triangle, which were staging areas. We started finding a lot more of these little caches. And uh, people wondered, why, why can't we find the big one? You know, the one that's got thousands of weapons in it or whatever. Uh, and I think... Uh, what they thought was true, that they needed to spread it out so that one, one lucky find didn't, didn't immobilize the whole project. So I, I think uh, we started finding find that quite commonly out there. And some of the things you'd see that, uh, that were uh, amazing was, uh, and usually from the stores, uh, the stuff they'd store, they made it uh, from our na napalm canisters, for example. We used all their silverware, their, their dishes and plates, their... Uh, they would take, uh, uh, I found uh, uh, grooming kits. These guys would take a piece of metal from a napalm canister and, and file it down and make a comb out of it. Straight razors, things like that. You think about it, there's no Walmarts out there, and, and, and uh, they probably will be someday, but 
they uh, they would take that stuff and just they were great with their hands. They would always do a little artwork on it with a that girlfriend's name or something on it, and uh, that was kind of the way they passed their time. I, I'm assuming because there was an awful lot of that stuff. As far as the the um, uh, munitions, I, I think uh, the failure rate in Vietnam was something like uh, it was only something like four percent, like dud rounds. But when you're talking about millions and millions of tons of bombs, that's a lot of ordnance that didn't explode. They're still finding it every day now. They would take that, and uh, if they could break it apart and take the powder out, then they could make you know, make take one uh, one five five round and can make ten booby traps with the powder in that thing. But think about it, that's kind of a tricky job. You've got to get the thing open, get the powder out without blowing yourself to bits. And my understanding is that a lot of people were, uh, quite a number were, were killed doing that. Uh, they had a way of accepting that kind of death uh, as being part of the of the overall fight, and they they would just uh, put up with it. But and I've learned that Thai. I know some Viet Cong uh, from recent trips over there. And uh, they would talk about those kinds of hardships, but uh, they were taught from an early age that they had to had to put up with it. Um, the, the the nationalist effort that they were, in their, in their terms, revolutionary effort, was worth the death to anybody, wife, son, whatever. Um, so they were doing things like touching this ordinance and stuff that we wouldn't wouldn't think of. Uh, well, when when we would find unexploded ordnance out in the field, we would uh, just approach it cautiously because it could be already booby trapped. That's another thing to do. They would take a piece of our ordnance, put a small piece of theirs underneath it, wait till we get close. They had trip wires. I mean, they had either trip wires or electrical uh, detonation, detonation devices that would uh, blow these up. There's one thing for a grenade to, to explode next to four or five minutes, a whole different thing for an artillery shell. You know, a 105 millimeter or 155 was common. Um, that takes out the whole platoon, anybody that's close to it. So uh, you had to watch out for that. But <clears throat> when we would go up to them, uh, we always had engineers with us. We had a lot of demo, a lot of C4 plastic explosive. And we would just lay the plastic explosive and blow it in place and back off, have a fuse, get, you know, hide, get down and, and blow it up. And uh, this can, can take a considerable amount of time when you think about it, if you keep running across these, but the danger of leaving it behind, just going around and leaving it behind, is that Charlie will get it and he'll make it into a mine, some kind of a mine, like it to be used against you at a later date. Chaos reigned when the Viet Cong popped out of the tunnels and attacked. I remember one time we were in a fight, uh, and uh, for a little firefight, we took about three or four casualties, and these were guys that were in the tunnels in spider holes, popping up, shooting back down the tunnel. Uh, I went up with, uh, we didn't know exactly where they were coming from uh, when we first took the casualty, so I sent myself and two men up to see if we could locate the sources, most, the closest one anyway. And sure enough, we saw the guy standing there. And uh, immediately, about the time we saw this, this individual standing in the tunnel with his AK looking around, he saw us, and almost simultaneously, uh, some shooting happened from further back, another spider hole. The two guys, the one in front of me and the one behind me, we were just like this, the three stooges, real close together. Uh, both dropped just like that. We all dropped because the, the bullets were flying, but both of them were hit in the initial burst. And uh, we all managed to get back. They crawled back and I grabbed, grabbed their weapons and crawled back too. Uh, we had seen the one guy. He wasn't the one doing the shooting. Uh, anyway, it was determined that uh, we need to go up there and get those guys. So, so I was a logical participant because I knew I had seen the guy going down. I was the only one who knew where it was. And uh, so I've agreed to do that. And I went up there. I wasn't going to make the mistake that I'd seen before, I described before, uh, of looking down in there or anything like that. I just, I just had a grenade ready, and I, and I climbed up on the on the top of it. 
I know he's probably right, right underneath there. Um, and I uh, popped a grenade, and what we used to do, what we call cook off, we let the grenade cook off because that has about four and a half seconds. Once you let go of the handle, you got four and a half seconds, and then it explodes. Um, you let it go, you can hear that thing go pop. You know, in your head, you're going thousand one, thousand two, thousand, and that was my cook off. I, I was willing to let go two and a half seconds because four and a half seconds long. If the guy's standing right there, and you throw it down, just let the thing. You got four and a half seconds. That's plenty of time to pick it up. Basically, it would probably blow up in your face. And you think about it, that's the uh, that's really all Charlie has can do. He's he's a dead man if he didn't get rid of that grenade. So he's at least going to try to throw it back out. And if you're lying on top of the hole, right beside the hole, it's going to blow up right here. So uh, I was more worried about that than I was a, pr a premature detonation on the grenade, which I've seen some of those go pretty fast too. But uh, you know, pop it, thousand one, thousand two, thousand, and then throw it hard with English if possible. <laughs> Uh, you don't want your ball players down there making a great catch and throwing it back up. So throw it as hard as they could. If you can bounce it off some walls, and they're great. And, uh, I, and then, of course, you cover up, lay down flat. And I remember this explosion kind of pushed me off the ground a little bit. And, and I looked up and smoke and dust and everything. And right in, laying right in front of me was this AK-47. Beautiful rifle, brand new. Except the stock was all messed up from the explosion. It was just laying right in front of me. It must have it must have been blown out and hit the bank on the other side and then come back because I was not over I mean, you know, somehow it came back. <laughs> that was uh, like, you know, this, you did the right thing and here's your trophy. You know? I mean, I was amazing. But it did tell me that he was right there. I mean, he had to be real close to the entry there. And uh, that would have been one of those deals where if you just crawled up and looked in there, yeah, I'm sure he had his finger on the trigger. So th those kinds of things. Uh, actually, I experienced that, something like that twice that same day and, and from the other spider holes. And uh, the people behind me were watching, were close enough to see what was going on. I think uh, some of them, Learned a little bit, just 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 watching. I mean, OJT is the best teacher, but if you can have somebody in front of you that's done it a couple of times and watch them, then you maybe it's your turn next time. You know? and that's that's it was just kind of the mantle was passed you know, down to the younger guys. From his experience in Vietnam, Schooler acknowledges that it took a certain breed of soldier to volunteer for the deadly duty of a tunnel rat. Some of us were somewhere in between sanity and that really adventurous spirit uh, but we would see guys that we trusted and uh, that really uh, had looked up to because of their actions and the way they handled themselves and under stress would being what being cool was really about when you see a guy like that and he's the one that's leading you you want to be like him and so I think some of us uh, fell into that that group uh, well if he's doing it I'm gonna do it you know and uh, and then others uh, uh, it's probably the two main groups there might have been a few guys that just uh, uh, didn't know any better, but uh, I, I think that the the true rats, the guys that went down day in day out, I, they again they they had this feeling of superiority, uh, in a sense, over people who just wouldn't touch it. And the fact that it was voluntary tells you a lot. I mean, there's not too many things in the military that are voluntary, but they knew they weren't going to have much luck asking guys to crawl down in two foot wide holes, uh, looking for an armed enemy or booby traps or whatever. So. Uh, they asked us, and you know, some of us said, "Okay, I wouldn't want to do it for a year." Uh, those the, the tunnel rats that that um, taught us the original ones, those engineers. That's all they did day in day out. They finished this tunnel, no relief. They they get on a chopper and they go to another one, and they get on a chopper and go to another one. Whoever survives that one, and uh, I just can't imagine lasting a year. In fact, I think most of the ones I've talked to uh, were either injured or, or something like that, or. or 
broke down psychologically. You know? um, so uh, ours, because ours was mixed, you know, with part-time time rats, part-time point men. None of those are great jobs, but, uh, but there was a little bit of diversity there. Uh, to follow up on that, there was a, a lot of boredom out there. Uh, some guys can go two or three weeks without actually seeing anything, any kind of action or anything, or a month. And they'll do anything to to just be feel like they're part of, of the. I mean, what are we here for? You know, we're supposed to be after Charlie. So, I think there's a little bit of that eked into it. Also, boredom. A lot, a lot of people don't think of war as being boring, but it's about 90% boredom and 10% sheer terror. So you have to uh, you have to balance the uh, uh, that boredom will will bring down the morale after a while, particularly in those areas like the hobo and iron triangle stuff, which were heavily booby trapped. That was their main modus operandi, you might say, as far as doing doing damage to us. When you're taking casualties every day, even if it's just one or two, you know, uh, you're walking along, you hear an explosion, you hear a guy screaming, you find out two guys got hit, one killed. Uh, okay, that's all that happened that day. Uh, tomorrow, or maybe two days, same thing happens, another area. Uh, or maybe the same area. Uh, it becomes demoralizing, and pretty soon you just are chomping at the bit to, to, to get at the enemy, you know, payback. And uh, once that kicks in, uh, all these things you gotta remember. We're talking about minds of twenty-year-olds, twenty-one-year-olds, and all that stuff starts cooking, and and you get some pretty aggressive people, sometimes over-aggressive. We hope you've enjoyed this presentation of In Their Own Words. This program was created and produced by First Person Productions in association with the Documentary Broadcasting Company. The stories told herein were supplied by The Honor Project. Produced by David Benson. Content written and produced by Dave Barsky. Engineered by Greg Bartheld and Brian Donovan. Narrated by Bill Ratner. This production is copywritten by First Person Productions Incorporated. Any unauthorized broadcast, public performance, or copying is a violation of applicable laws. We often hear about the individuals who took the oath of office to become the chief executive. But what about the other people who play a role in each administration or the events that may not be as well known but that contribute to the reshaping of the office of the American presidency. On the presidencies of the United States, we explore each administration beyond just the person holding the highest elected office in order to better understand the history that brought us to the modern-day presidency. I hope you'll join me on this journey through the annals of presidential history. Presidencies can be found anywhere fine podcasts can be found and as a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network.